when we look at the New Testament and we look at what Jesus laid out and his expectations, and when we look at the people who accomplished Christianity in its very beginnings, uh, we find people like us with jobs, like us in lives, like us with hang-ups, like ours in a culture very much like ours. In fact, I was just thinking the other day, this is a big one. Um, if you go back and you read about why Jesus' coming was rightly timed from a historical perspective, the list of things that they'll mention are all suddenly boxes we can tick in a greater way today. So, for example, you had, you had the Roman Empire that had given a single language and a single culture to the entire world. And without embracing Roman imperialism, it was still the case. In the same way, English imperialism about a century ago has spread English so broadly that there's, you can go all over the world and share the gospel even in your native tongue. Um, transportation was another one. Because of Rome, once again, Roman roads. All roads lead to Rome, you know the saying. Uh, now we have, we have the ability to get across, across the entire world you know, in, in less than days. Uh, and uh, even, even when you look at the, um, the pluralistic reality that we live in today, it's not that different from the Roman Empire. Uh, so anyways, uh, we've been trying to narrow this gap, and we've looked at a couple of things. We talked about, for example, the first week, the fact um, that although Christianity promises a tremendous hope in heaven, it's not just something about when you die. It's not just concerning your afterlife. It's very much about the life lived now. Jesus put it so clearly when he said, I came so that you may have life and have it abundantly. Uh, we looked the second week about the, uh, at the fact that, um, uh, that we are the church. That we as a people, collectively and individually and specifically together, are the body that Jesus uses to do ministry. Um, that pastors and leaders and specialists and those who are gifted uh, exist to exist the body to do the ministry, not to minister to the body. And that God has uniquely gifted each one so that we can build up the body in love, as it says in Ephesians. Last week we looked at the fact that love your neighbor, even when we look at Jesus' amazing parable about the Good Samaritan where he expands the definition of neighbor and says anyone you meet in need is your neighbor. That doesn't remove the fact that your first neighbor is the one who lives right next to you. And that the, the ministry of love your neighbor begins right in your life with those closest to you. Uh, and this week, uh, we're going to talk specifically about evangelism. Um, we're going to talk about the mission field, if you will. And uh, we've, we've titled this, The Mission Field is Right Here. Um, I think this is one of the most important, uh, and it's, it's for a couple of reasons. But the biggest reason I think this one is the most important is because I find this one to be the biggest struggle. Um, that the idea of, of evangelism or, or missions work, of the idea of just telling other people about Jesus, frankly, the idea of having an opinion in, in today's day and age is really difficult, right? Just reading through my Facebook, not when I'm posting, just reading other people's posts, I feel my heart rate rise in nervousness, you know, and I haven't even said anything yet. Um, and so, so it's important that we look at this, and, and the goal is really simple today. I just, I just want to get rid of a good deal of our fears and our excuses. I want to narrow that gap 
between what God has clearly called the church to do. All you have to do is read what Jesus says in his parting words in Matthew 28 when he says to his disciples, which includes all of us, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them and baptizing them, uh, you know, uh, and teaching them to obey everything that I've taught. Um, That is for us. Um, But I do want to say something up front, especially if you're not... Uh, if you're not a Christian this morning, by nature, what we're going to be looking at is terribly practical. And it may even feel awkward for you because we're going to be talking about how to talk to you about Jesus and you're right here. Um, but I did want to just make one clarification and then one application to keep in mind while we go forward. The clarification is this, that what we mean when we talk about conversion, when we talk about evangelization, when we talk about bringing people to Jesus is not church membership. It's not getting you on the roster. It's not about making you live like we live. When we say the word evangelism, that means the proclamation of good news. You see, what we are interested in doing uh, is proclaiming to the world that the God who created it, as we saw in our catechism today, despite the fact that we rebelled against him, despite the fact that we, uh, we have our own sin issues and we're selfish and these things, instead of abandoning the project of human life, became a man, lived the life we couldn't live, died the death that we deserved, and then freely offered not merely forgiveness, but restoration in relationship with him, his very nature in the Holy Spirit so that we might walk in righteousness, and all of the incredible promises on the New Testament are built on the fact that Jesus has done what we couldn't do, and that's terribly good news, okay? Yesterday at Allen's Memorial, um, it, was, it was one of the most diverse memorials I've ever sat in. We had people from all walks of life, from all over the states. Uh, there were people who Uh, who were Jews and agnostics and mystics and Rastafarians, and Alan just had impacted so many people. But the conversation I kept hearing people have all day was, I saw this change in Alan's life. What was it that changed him from this really nice-dressed businessman to to the hippie who loved everyone and adopted every animal and brought the homeless into his house? And the answer is Jesus. If what we experienced in Alan's life, if you ever had a conversation with him, was the overflow of the love of Jesus Christ. And so the reason we evangelize is not about some sort of political takeover. It's not to make life easier for us to live. It's, that it's this overflow of God's love in the reality that God can save a sinner like me. And that includes you. So that being said, I'd like to look at John chapter 4 this morning. Um, and here's, here's the application. I promised a clarification for those of you who are just checking out Christianity or just visiting today. Here's the application. I want you to recognize as we look at these things uh, that, uh, that we struggle as a church to do this, that there's a direct relationship or correlation or similarity between the incredible brain in Dr. David Haw- or in Dr. Stephen Hawking's and his inability to communicate and the beautiful message of the gospel and the church's struggle to proclaim it. But that doesn't make the gospel any less beautiful. It doesn't make it any less true. Uh, and, and frankly, um, just, just recognize, just recognize um, that, 
the reason we're even talking about this is because this is not merely our heart, but this is God's heart. He wants to be known. He wants you to know him personally. He wants to step into your life, and he wants to transform it into something beautiful. So John chapter 4. chapter I often turn to when I'm thinking through sharing Jesus with other people. And it's a good one for a bunch of reasons. It begins with Jesus having a conversation with a Samaritan woman next to a well, and he slowly brings her to the understanding that he is the promised Messiah. Um, and just in that passage alone, there's much we can learn from Jesus's example. Um, it's, it's amazing his his humility, his thoughtfulness, the way that he listens and invests, his, his boldness, how he knows when to speak and lay his finger on hard things and when to let things pass. There's lots to be learned there. But I actually want to pick up in what's next. Because I can't think of a better example for us than an unlikely example. And although there's tons of unlikely examples in the New Testament of people who made a profound impact for the kingdom, people who uh, saw great fruit from their own ministry. I mean, the apostles themselves were merely backwoods fishermen with weird accents, uh, you know, uh, messed up political zealots and tax collectors who were hated by all sorts of people. They were, in other words, normal people, okay? Um, but it's easy to read the book of Acts, for example, and see the incredible character or the the results. Uh, we can look at a ministry like Billy Graham and forget that he was ever a child, that he stumbled through the first time he ever told anybody about Jesus. We forget that D.L. Moody, who spoke to almost every American, at least statistically, almost every American over the course of his life as they gathered to hear him speak, uh, we forget that he was a shoe salesman before he started becoming an evangelist, and that even when he made that transition, uh, he struggled in those things. Uh, we look at the final product of people's ministry and we forget everything it took to get there. So it's good then to have an example like this. And the example I want to look at, like I said, is not Jesus. It's this woman. It's this woman. And so I want to pick up in verse 26. John four twenty-six. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he, the Messiah. 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here this saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Let's pray.
Father, I know I speak for many in this room when I just raise my hand and say, this is an area where, where I struggle, where I'm still a mixed up bundle of boldness and fears of uh, feeling excited and terrified of um, having a heart and struggling through indifference for other people. I pray, even as we look at something as simple as an example and draw practical illustrations from it, Lord, I pray that you would impress upon us more of your heart, that you would transform us more deeply into your image, that we would reflect the overflowing love and the outgoing character of the God who sent Jesus Christ, that we would be conformed in that image to your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. So the first thing uh, we should notice here is, is who this missionary is. And I'm, I'm sure you noticed that the whole city comes out based on her word. Uh, this entire city of Samaria that this woman is in comes to Jesus. And look at how it concludes uh, in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him. And he stayed two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And so what we see in this city is massive, but it begins with this one conversation. It begins with Jesus talking to one woman at the well. And if you're not familiar with the story later, I'd really encourage you to go back and read the rest of chapter 4 and see what happens there. But when it comes to the culmination, Jesus says, I am the Messiah. She says, when he comes, when the Messiah comes, we will know these things. And Jesus said, you're talking to him right now. And in the midst of this grand revelation, Jesus' disciples who went out to buy lunch come back. And it's a little bit awkward. It's awkward because Jesus is a respected rabbi and he's talking with a woman. It's awkward because they're in hostile territory, Samaria, and he's talking with a Samaritan. Um, it's, it's awkward because the, the conversation is clearly intense and they've just walked in in the middle of it and it's, you know, this intensity is suddenly broken. Uh, it does, to their credit, say that they didn't interrogate Jesus on this. They didn't ask the woman, why are you here? They didn't tell him to go away, which is something, by the way, they struggled with. Sometimes they didn't understand what Jesus was about. In fact, not very far from this occasion, in an unsuccessful campaign in Samaria, as they walk out when everyone has rejected Jesus, one of them turns to Jesus and goes, should we call down fire from heaven? Should we just proclaim a curse on this place and watch God destroy it? And he says, do you even know, do you even know whose heart? Do you even understand where you're coming from? Uh, so they didn't always get it, but here they know enough to bite their tongues. But what I want to focus in on is the action of the woman. Think with me about how little she has at this moment, okay? All she has is this mystifying conversation with a guy who clearly knows her more intimately than, than she would expect, Jesus speaks directly to her issues. He knows and proclaims that she's had five husbands and that she's now living with a man who is not her husband. She says after that, I, I perceive that you're a prophet, really. I mean, she's just blown away by how much she knows and it's built into what she says to the town. Come see the man who, who knew everything about me. But she, she knows so little. Not only that, but this is before she's even had a chance to understand that the Messiah did not just come merely to rule and reign, but to die. She doesn't understand the mission 
of Jesus yet. She doesn't get all of that. Um, on top of that, unlike us today, she doesn't have a community to do ministry with. She's fully solo, which let me just remind you, the New Testament is constantly saying that we should go out together. When Jesus sent out his disciples into the towns before them, he sent them in pairs, right? It's a together work, and yet she's on her own. Not only that, but this is before the giving of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus does die and resurrect and appear to his disciples, he says, before you do anything, before you kick off this ministry, before you go into all the world and proclaim, wait in Jerusalem, stay put until you receive the Holy Spirit who was promised, and he will make you witnesses. That promise, by the way, as is made clear in Acts chapter 2, after this tremendous proclamation by Peter that leads to 3,000 people becoming Christians in a single sermon, after that he proclaims and he says, that spirit is for you and your children and for all who believe in Jesus Christ, which means it's for us. She doesn't have any of those things. So let's look at her example. I want you to notice uh, first in verse 27, um, verse 28, it says, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people. There's three verbs in that sentence. It says she left, she went, and she said. And I don't want to be over-allegorical, but there's a principle there that's important for us to recognize, okay? Uh, The first is, it says that she left, not just that she left where she was, but she left her water jar behind, okay? Um, Now, what does that say? Okay, first you have to remember the context. Here, the reason she had this conversation with Jesus on this particular day is because she came to the well to draw water. Remember that this is an ancient world where there's no indoor plumbing, and so your water supply you had to go out and get, and it's vital for life. Remember that we're talking about the Middle East here where the environment is not always giving and and water is essential in daily consumption for the survival, right? Uh, And she, she just stops, and she leaves her pot where it is, and she goes, okay? Now, I could, and I have in the past, take this allegorically and press it beyond the implications here and and just point out the obvious fact that if you're going to go tell people about Jesus, you're going to have to leave something behind. There's always going to be obstacles. There's always going to be other things you could be doing. But we can, without having to go that far, we can draw a couple of principles about here about what this agenda of going to talk to the men in the city meant to this woman. And the the first one I want you to recognize is, is that it's somehow essential. She doesn't prioritize and say, water first, then, then evangelism. She doesn't say, let me take care of myself, and then I'll go tell people about Jesus. There's an urgency to this. This is something that needs to be done right now. And that urgency is not merely from some threat of consequence. In a week like this, I don't have to remind you the fragility of life. I don't have to remind you the suddenness that things change. I don't have to remind you that Uh, What makes Alan's passing so hard for all of us is that we weren't prepared for it. We didn't expect it. Somehow, even here, she understands that urgency, but it's not merely because she recognizes the threat of everyone who's not yet met this man. The urgency comes from the excitement that he's the one, that everything she's ever been looking for. I mean, let, let me just be frank 
she shows a pattern in her life of looking for something that she's not finding. Husband after husband, relationship after relationship. Whatever she's doing to try and find the meaning of life, it's not working. And now she meets a man who raises his hand and says, I'm he. And for the first time, she knows she's met it. And she sets aside what's normally important. And she goes and she tells. The second one, and it's related to that principle, is priority. Right? She prioritizes the telling of this people. She leaves one thing behind because this is more important. But she didn't just leave. She didn't just leave things behind. The Christian life will never be lived by merely aestheticism. If what your life looks like as a Christian is just all the things you don't do, that doesn't sound very much like the abundant life that Jesus promised. And so the verbs continue here. Not only did she leave her water pot behind, but it says she went. And that's implied even by Jesus' command in the Great Commission, go. And, And I'll tell you simply here, you have to go. It's interesting that in the Great Commission itself, although the way it reads in English, the verb that sounds important is go. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing and teaching. There's four verbs there, and to us it sounds like the go is the primary one. But in in the actual Greek, only one of those is an imperative. Only one of those is a command, and it's make disciples. But nonetheless, you cannot do that without going. You cannot do that without teaching. And you cannot do that without baptizing. And so those verbs help us to understand the reality. But the truth is, if you're going to tell people about Jesus, you have to go. But I want you to notice in verse 28 where she went. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people. Let let me paraphrase. She went home. Right? She didn't think, oh, I have to tell people in Zimbabwe. I have to tell people the first people she thought of were the people in her own hometown. And let me just remind you here that that was not a comfortable place for her. We find out in the beginning of the story that she's at the well and she has this intimate conversation with Jesus. The well is the community's water cooler, right? It's where all of the socializing happens during the day. Why is there only two people at this well? Because it's the middle of the day. It's hot. Why is the woman drawing water at the middle of the day? Because she's somewhat of a social pariah, right? Every woman in town is like, you stay away from that woman to their husband. Every man in town keeps his secrets, you know, behind closed doors and so isn't seen with her publicly. She's there because she's got conflict in her neighbors, in her family, in her friends. She knows what rejection is like and yet she goes right into that context but simply put, she only goes home. If you visit other churches, sometimes above the front door of the church as you go out the building, sometimes a sign in the parking lot, you may see a sign that says, the mission field begins right here. Or you are now entering into the mission field. And that's absolutely and utterly and completely true. And I want to be clear, okay? If God became a man and invaded the earth to, to, to set things right, to bring salvation, then it is completely and utterly appropriate for us to go to the end of the nations. It's the only way you can make sense of the life choices of these missionaries throughout history who have gone to places you wouldn't go for vacation, who have gone to places at great threat to their own life and even cost themselves their lives to proclaim this message because it's just that worth doing. But all of them began at home. All of them got there because they started here. 
And if you look at the evangelism in the early church in the first few centuries, the primary place that, uh, that the church grew was in what the New Testament commonly calls the ha- household, which is, to be honest, a little bit bigger than your household. Okay? The Roman household generally was a family, parents and children. Uh, it was relatives beyond that because it was very common in, in many of these cultures to move in with your relatives, to have a larger family compound. It was all of your servants and slaves. This was the household. And what would happen is somebody in the household would become a Christian and they'd bring that Christianity back to the home and the household would be saved. You'll see this over and over in the proclamation. This is for you and your household. Greet the church that meets in your household. And as we look beyond the pages of the New Testament in the first two centuries, the place where Christianity was growing was in normal Christians telling their friends, their families, their servants, their co-workers, the people that they encountered every day. Yes, there were missionaries who took it to new places, but those missionaries were only footholds and then it grew through that same method. Okay. She went home. And then the last thing is it, sa- it says here that she said. And this is, this is something you have to keep in mind. Okay. She opened her mouth. She said something. Evangelism it means to proclaim good news. And it can't be done without words. Now, I find less and less people familiar with this uh, saying that's probably falsely attributed to St. Francis, but it's worth bringing up just in case. Preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Now, now the truth is, we don't have any record of St. Francis actually saying that until decades and decades after St. Francis lived. So he may have never said it, but instead, let me give you the words of St. Paul. Okay, Paul says in Romans, if nobody says how will they hear? And if they do not hear, how will they believe? If Christianity was a disease, it is only communicable by word of mouth. And I know that's that's the threshold, isn't it? That's where it's hard. That's why there's this emphasis often in the church now of what's called friendship evangelism, but so often it just divulges into merely friendship, right? Because eventually you have to open your mouth. But there's encouragement to be had even in this. Yes, you have to speak, but what does she say? Two things I want you to notice here. Verse 29, here's the word she said to the people. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Notice a couple of things here first. First, she roots this almost entirely in an invitation. Come and see. Come and see. Hear for yourself. This is another pattern we see throughout the New Testament. When Andrew goes to his brother Peter, he says, I think we found the Messiah. Come, come see for yourself. When people came to Jesus and asked him questions, he said, come and see. Right? He, he made an invitation. Inquire for yourself. There is a need to defend the truths of Christianity. Actually, the primary need for us today is to help people see the illogicalness of many of the things they say that keep them from Christianity. Because if we help them to break away those things, then they can give a fresh look at Christianity. That's an essential part. But I also stand with what Spurgeon once said. He said, the truth is like a lion. Let it out and it will defend itself. 
We don't believe just that the gospel is good news. We believe that it's true news, that it's verifiable. And if you look at the New Testament over and over again, they root the reality of what Jesus has done in the fact that it can be shown to be true. Peter says, we didn't proclaim to you cleverly devised fables, but what we had seen for ourselves as eyewitnesses. John says at the opening of his letter, those things that we have seen, that we have handled, that we have heard for ourselves, that we have embraced, these are the things that we proclaim to you. Luke said that I put put together the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts as an orderly account of eyewitness testimony. And so here she comes, she does proclaim, but she makes it an invitation. She says, come and see. And we see that that's tremendously fruitful. What do the people respond back later in the chapter? First, we came to hear for ourselves, but now we know for ourselves. Second thing I want you to notice here is that she does it in terms of a question. Can this be the Christ? Right? This is not a bold proclamation of who Jesus is. I think it's pretty clear here that she's on her own journey, right? She's in the midst of figuring this out for herself. She's convinced enough to ask for other people to look into it as well, but not convinced enough to say, I found the Messiah, and yet it's still productive. It's still meaningful. We have to become comfortable with not controlling the conversation. Frankly, let me reverse that, because I know the world that we live in now, it's not that we have to become comfortable controlling the conversation. We have to realize that it's effective to not be in control of the conversation. We have to recognize that you really can lead someone to Jesus just by saying, come and see. Look for yourself. Could this be what you're looking for? And so her testimony here, the third thing I want you to see is that it's tremendously personal. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And this is another thing we see over and over again. It's why we use the word testimony so often in church. A good deal of evangelism comes down to just this fact. Look, I, I looked at a couple of other unlikely examples. Um, in terms of going home, there's a man, a demoniac, who Jesus so radically heals that it scares the life out of his entire community. And they go from being afraid of this guy and staying away from him because he's got supernatural strength and he breaks breaks his chains because he's constantly bloody from cutting himself because he's a threat to society. They come out and they see him in his right mind and that scares them even more. So they go to Jesus and they go, we don't want you here. Get out of town. But that man, that man begs to go with Jesus. Is that a surprise? His life has been radically upended for the better. And he says, please go with me. And to be honest, what command could Jesus have given this man that he would have denied? If he had said, I want you to on foot go to the ends of the earth and tell people, he would have done it. But instead he says, no, go home. Go to the city you're from. Bear witness of what God has done in your life. You see, why does Jesus do that? Because he's just been kicked out of town. And as it says in one of the prophets, the Lord won't leave himself without a witness. Jesus isn't allowed in the town, but this man lives there. And that truth is applicable to us. 
Because if you have this tendency to think, okay, evangelism is just the job of the professionals, a lot of those professionals are never going to be let into the lives of your friends and coworkers. But you're there. God has sent you there as a missionary. Another crazy example we could have looked at that presses this second point, this second point of what was said, uh, is a man in John chapter 9 who's born blind, and Jesus heals. Okay? Not gone blind later in life, born blind, and Jesus brings him sight. Can you even imagine? It's one thing if you haven't seen for a long time and suddenly you see, but what if you don't know about the sun? What if you don't know about colors? What if you've never seen your loved ones ever and suddenly you do? The Pharisees are so upset about this because it's leading to the popularity of Jesus. They pull him into their little court and they're trying to interrogate him to prove that this isn't real. They call in his parents and go, are you sure this is your blind son? Right? They're doing everything they can. And they, they say, who do you think? Who do you think did this? You know Jesus is merely a sinner. He couldn't have done this. And he goes, I don't know if he's a sinner, but I'll tell you what. I was blind and now I see. Testimony. Most of evangelism, most, there's a punchline to evangelism. There's an essential part that needs to be done. But most of it is just saying, do you want to know what's made such a difference in my life? Do you want to know how it is that I've been able to cope do you want to know what's become necessary in my life that makes life worth living, that, that brings me through? Do you want to understand what's become the heart and soul of who I am? It's testimony. I was blind, but now I see. Come see the man who told me everything I ever did. Continuing in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Now, you have to understand here, the reason Jesus was left alone at this well is because he basically collapsed. Jesus ran himself ragged in his ministry, and so when we find him in times of rest, we find him in a, in a ship during a storm, so asleep that he doesn't know how big the storm is. We find him pulling into town and collapsing next to a well and sending the disciples to go get lunch because he can't walk any further. And they come here with lunch in hand, and he's, he's, he's in a, just a different world than they left him. And they say, Rabbi, eat. And listen to how he responds, verse 32. He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that this conversation he just had with this woman, it's satisfying. He found contentment in it. It brought something to his life uh, that was not just merely more important than food, but as satisfying as food. And here's another thing. So often we see telling other people about Jesus as a burden that we feel the responsibility of it, but we feel like it's merely cost and not reward. And I'll tell you simply that you're going to have to learn, like Jesus is saying here, that there's a tremendous satisfaction in it. You experience it in other places. How good does it feel to love someone well? My dad killed it at Christmas. I have never seen my mom so excited about Christmas gifts, and he nailed two in a row. 
I mean, she opened a box and just blew up with excitement, and then she did it again. In fact, he did it again while I was at her house this week. She got another package, and we had just had a conversation about something she wanted, and my dad had already ordered it in the mail. He's just so in tune with loving his wife right now. And I know the reason he keeps it up, why it didn't just stop with one, why he didn't, you know, just do a victory dance in the end zone and retire for the year is because he knows the satisfaction. He's learned what Jesus says in another place, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus himself sees this conversation and he says, I'm satiated, I'm satisfied, I'm content. God has so designed doing his will, God has so designed obedience, that all of it is inherently love, right? Paul says, if you love, you fulfill the law. He's designed life that when you do it right in obedience to God, it's love and therefore it's tremendously fulfilling. And this is, this is a place where you just have to step out in faith. And as much as you're afraid of things going sideways in your friendship, most of that is not going to happen. Most of your fears are, are irrational. But Jesus here teaches us that there's a satisfaction in doing his will and specifically in the proclamation of good news. Verse 35, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Put this once again in the context. Here is Jesus with his disciples who he's training to be missionaries. And they're in hostile territory. They're in Samaria, people who are hated by the Jews. If anyone thought that that there was a community that was inaccessible to Jesus, it would have been Samaria. The Samaritans who only received the first five books of Moses who didn't believe in the temple, who were generally suspicious of the Jews because of the constant oppression and alienation that they'd experience. And here a Jewish rabbi comes in and is saying, I'm, I'm the fulfillment of all these things. And the idea, I don't think it's surprising, is this one's going to take time. This one we're just going to have to be patient on. This is going to have to be, you know, phase two. And Jesus says, you're saying... It's not time to harvest. You're looking out and saying, well, the fields aren't ready. The fruit isn't bearing. There's no reason to go out and to harvest yet. And he says, look around you. The fields are ripe for harvest. It's another thing that you need to learn to take on faith. It's so easy to look at the people who we know and who we love and who we spend time with, to look at their lives, to look at their resistance to what they think Christianity is or maybe what they know Christianity is, to look at the pattern in their lives of how they've been treated by other Christians, to, uh, to look at the problems evangelism presents and just say, it's not time yet. I think this statement here has been proven true time and time again. Anytime I've ever heard about a culture where Christianity was uh, inaccessible, where it couldn't make any headways, I found stories of people who just willingly went and tried and bore fruit. In your friends, in your family, there are people who are on the cusp of becoming Christians. Fields are ripe for harvest, and they're ripe now. In this economy, in this political climate, in this, you know, hot topic, push button, freak out world. Like I said, it's not that different than the way things are in Rome. And yet, there is going to be hardships and difficulties that come with this. Jesus said that's par for the course for the Christian life. But that doesn't mean that there's not reward and fruit and beauty and goodness. The fields are ripe for harvest. 
Notice what he says in 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Here's another clarification. He sees he sees evangelism here as harvesting, but most of the time when we use that metaphor, we just reduce it down to the picture of a sickle being swung and the fruit being brought in. We see conversion as it is, as instantaneous. This has to be stressed. You don't gradually become a Christian. You go from death to life. You go from darkness to light. You go through new birth. It is instantaneous. But there's a good deal of change that happens before you become a Christian. There's a lot of pre-conversions. I've seen it in people's lives where at first they're pretty sure they know what Christianity teaches and they discover that they're wrong. They're pretty sure they know how Christians would treat them and they discover that they're wrong. They swear that they'd never walk into a church and they find themselves there, right? There's lots of little pieces. Discipleship begins before conversion, not after. Coming alongside someone and talking to them, conversing them, here, he takes the metaphor and he says it's not just reaping, but also sowing. And not only that, but he sees this as something we do together. Did you catch that? One reaps and another sows. You see, when we do evangelism and we reduce it down to a single conversation that's life or death, where it's all on the deck, and that's the end of it, we misunderstand how this actually works. And for many of you who became Christians as an adult, you forget how it was for you. Yes, Maybe some of you, it was instantaneous. You heard a sermon and you responded. You had a conversation, you prayed to become a Christian. But don't forget everything that led up to that. Don't forget all of the other pieces that are interwoven in that. And most importantly, don't forget the fact that even when those conversations happen one-on-one, we do this together. Jesus says that the thing that validates the message of the gospel is Christian community. He says, by this, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. He says, they'll know and understand what the gospel is, that the gospel works, that the gospel is true when they encounter how Christians treat one another. So there's a togetherness in this aspect. And he says, it doesn't matter if you sow or you reap, you rejoice in the harvest together. One of the ways that I want this to work out practically in our church is in the context of home groups. I want the home groups monthly to just create a space for there to be overlap between the home group and those outside the church, between the home group and those in your workplace, the home group and those in your friend group, the home group and those in your family. And it doesn't always have to be a proactive time of proclaiming the gospel. It's just a time for the home group as the church to overlap relationally with those who are outside the church. And there's some simple glories in this that I absolutely love. How much easier would it be to bring your friend to church if they knew they already knew a dozen people there? But more importantly than that, our home groups is where that love for one another is best, best shown. Right? I see love here every Sunday. I watch as people pray for one another. I watch as needs are met. I watch as people are encouraged and exhorted. But this is only a small picture of what happens in the rest of the week. So it might be a barbecue. It might be going to see a film and then having a dialogue about it. Silence is in theaters right now. Take advantage of it. It may be uh, taking your coworkers and having someone talk about the overlap between faith and work and what what it looks like for them as a Christian, how it informs the way they do their job, especially if they're great at their job. 
But whatever it is, we do it together. And even when you're talking with somebody who's a stranger on the street, recognize the fact that you may be a missionary and you may be the only one talking to them right now and you may be the only human being who's ever talked to them, but God is more missionary than you and he's active in their life. Jesus says here, you're going to reap what you did not sow. And he's speaking specifically to the disciples because they're going to come back in Philip after Jesus and they're going to see everybody in this entire city get saved and it's all because of the preemptive work of Jesus and this one woman. But I think it's also a principle that's always true. Listen, let's put it all together. This woman is a moral mess. She's not even a new Christian. She's on the cusp. She's tottering. She, she's going to become a Christian. It's, it's evident, but it's in progress. She goes to a community that's so close, it knows all of her secrets, knows all of her flaws. She barely understands the gospel, has very little to put it through but her own experience and an honest question and an invitation. We see here a satisfaction that many of us have never tasted, that Jesus models for us. We discover uh, an optimism about the possibility of people becoming Christians that we don't often find in ourselves, and we find a teamwork that's not always visible. Listen, if God wanted to raise up specialists to reach the world, he could do it. But that's not how he designed it. And that's intentional. And one of the reasons is because our God is a together God. And here's what I mean. I mean that he's invited us into the harvest not because he needs workers, not because the work is beneath him. One of the early beginnings of modern missionaries uh, was a guy by the name of William Carey. He was a shoemaker in England. And he just started to have a heart for the rest of the world. And he had a map of the world in his house. And one day a Christian from his church said to William Carey, if God wanted to save the pagans, he'd do it himself. And although I think there's a ridiculousness in that statement for misunderstanding what we're called to as Christians in the heart of God, there is a truth there. God could do this alone. Why does he want to use the church? It's because he wants you to experience the tremendous joy he wants to do the work with you. He wants you to be where he is, out in the fields, doing the work of ministry. He's equipped us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Gosh, that's such a massive part of evangelism that we forget all the time. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that it's the most essential part, that the Spirit working in us takes our words and works them into the heart of the hearer. And that's why it doesn't always make sense when people come to Jesus because there's always, always, always a supernatural part of becoming a Christian. And so you don't go alone and you don't even go merely with other people you know. You don't merely go out in teams of two. You go with the missionary God. The God who's gone before you. The God who's laid out every piece. The God who has called and who has chosen. And the God who made a good news so good that it sells itself. 
even our goal in evangelism, it's definitely not compulsion. It's not conversion by the sword. It's not drag them across the threshold. But there's a sense where it's not even about selling it strong enough. That's the difference between an infomercial and a testimonial, right? It's not even, here's what Jesus can do for you. It slices, it dices, it'll save you from your sins, right? It's, <laughs> it's testimonial. It's, here's what Jesus has done for me. It's invitational. It's these things. Why can we go with such confidence when the stakes are so high? It's because the good news he's given us is just that good. And the equipment he's given us in proclamation is that powerful. And the mission field is filled with faces that you know the names of. Filled with people who you know the story of. Filled with places that you walk into every day of your life. People you talk to who you know And if this woman can see such tremendous results, why? Why would God use this Samaritan? When he pulls into town, why doesn't he go, who's the best person for the job and select the one true faithful? Why does he start with evangelism in this particular case on the outside? Guys, wind the story back enough and he always starts on the outside. The greatest evangelists were sinners saved by Jesus. And all of your disqualifications may actually be prerequisites only and solely and merely because they're coupled with the incredible grace and power of God. Let's pray. Father, I know these things are compelling because I have to preach them to myself to myself and I've, I've found them to be true I've tasted and seen the reality of these things but I know it's easy for us to get hung up on, on the how and I'm constantly reminded constantly reminded of the conversation with D.L. Moody where, where he basically said I don't care how you do it just do it we may make mistakes and we may be failures but even in the midst of that Lord you grow your kingdom. You build your church. You speak to Paul and you say, I have many people in this city. Don't be afraid. You speak to us and say, I'm working here in this neighborhood, in your family, in your neighbors. I can use you. We say, but we don't know what to say. And you say to us, as you say to Moses, I made your mouth. I'll make it speak. We say with Jeremiah, but I'm only a, a youth. I'm merely a new Christian. I, I, nobody will listen to me because of, and you say, don't worry about that. We say, but I'm still struggling to get it right. I'm not a professional Christian. I haven't matured enough. And you say, come, come and let me use even you. You say, as Paul did, I'm the chief of sinners. And God's used me as a prototype to show how greatly his mercy extends. God, I pray that we would just be reflecting this image of the God who is seeking to save. I pray that we would manifest this heart that loves 
his enemies and the rebels who stand against him and pursues the wicked and is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. I pray that we would recognize the hope of the gospel, that there's no one we can look at and say, you're too far gone. You stand against, you're too intellectually opposed, you're too smart or too rich or too dumb or, or too young or too old, Lord, that uh, your gospel is so powerful that you say, come all. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your Holy Spirit that impresses the truth of these words upon hearts, that leads us in our own mission and calls us to speak to him or to her to start a conversation here that leads us into prayer for those who don't know you that empowers our words and makes them life-giving and I thank you most of all Lord for the love that you've shown us the love that shed abroad in our hearts and just naturally seeks places to overflow and I pray that it would overflow through the communication of the good news that's made different in our lives. That we would be lovers proclaiming the love of the great lover. That we would be transformed proclaiming uh, the means of transformation. That we would be the healed proclaiming the cure that we have found. That we would be the beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. God, break down the barriers that keep us from sharing you with others. Help us to do it together as we gather and as we scatter. And I pray, Lord, that we would see fruit. Prove your words true that the field is ripe for harvest. Let us see many in our lives come to know you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.